you're listening to Charcha with Cass. I'm Sneha Khatri. I'm Raghav Sharma. Our guest today is a senior correspondent for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, based in Prague. Abu Bakar Siddiq covers the Middle East, South Asia, and Central Asia with a particular focus on Afghanistan and Pakistan. Siddiq has also spent the past decade and a half researching and writing on security, political, and humanitarian issues in the region. Mr. Siddiq is also the author of a critical book, The Pashtun Question, which brings forth a new perspective of social and political evolution of the Pashtun. where he was born. Welcome to Charcha with Kaz Siddiq Sahib. Uh, many thanks for having me, Sena. Yeah, thank you. So let me begin, sir, by asking you the role of British colonial ethnography. You mentioned uh, in your work that it dominates the narrative about Pashtuns. My question is, what role has the media played in breaking that stereotype? Has it managed to dispel the imagery? Specifically, I want to ask the emergence of social media and how far has that changed the way we perceive the Pashtun identity? Uh, well, I think, uh, yes. I mean, we have to go back uh, a little bit to the history and um, uh, just recall that uh, Pashtuns uh, live um, or their homeland is the, in the extreme northwest of uh, the Indian subcontinent or South Asia, uh, which today, of course, is um, a part um, spans Afghanistan and Pakistan. So um, the Pashtuns were... Um, they had an empire when the British uh, moved, uh, I mean, first the, the company government, the, uh, and, and then later the British Empire. Um, they, when they moved um, uh, north from east from Kolkata and, and later on those areas, um, and, and by uh, mid um, 19th century, they were in Delhi and the, uh, the Pashtuns kind of they um, um, became their neighbors. So if you look at like the first uh, colonial book about the Pashtuns, the British book about Pashtuns, an account of the kingdom of Kabul, it's written from a perspective that's more of a kind of curiosity. And, and it's, it's not from this perspective that uh, these are enemy people, uh, the Pashtuns. And, and you will find that like in many passages, um, Mansurat Elphinstone, who headed the delegation that visited um, the Pashtun homeland, probably somewhere uh, between 1805 and 1809, if I'm not wrong, uh, praised them as European-like, or in many passages, you will say that he says he, he refers to them as people who are uh, very European in some senses. Um, uh, and, and uh, in some ways uh, contrasted them with the rest of uh, people in, in South Asia. Um, but I think that perspective about Pashtuns changed radically when the British came in uh, not only political, but active military contact with the Pashtuns. And um, the first major military contact was, of course, the first um, Anglo-Afghan war, which resulted in a British defeat, and by many accounts, one of the worst British military defeats uh, um, in, in the 19th century. And then, of course, Pashtuns became uh, enemies, and Pashtuns turned into something uh, like um, the idea of like a noble, um, um, noble savage in the colonial um, 
narratives of the time. Um, uh, uh, British prime uh, politician, leader, and prime minister, Winston Churchill in his youth also spent some time in the Pashtun homeland and um, wrote a book called the Malakan Field Force, <laughs> which of course, uh, um, um, he, he wrote the book of course as a journalist, uh, but he kind of reinforced these uh, stereotypes of Pashtuns as fanatical people. One of the most sophisticated accounts of the Pashtuns came much later in the mid 20th century when Sir Olf Kero wrote his famous book, The Pathans, in which he again tried to reinforce some of these stereotypes of Pashtuns being violent people, warlike people, um, idealized some qualities of Pashtuns, um, such as hospitality, uh, the whole idea of reciprocity, which in British accounts is again and again referred to as revenge or badal, as uh, we say in Pashto. Um, so, so um, and, and that narrative held uh, dominate, dominant for a long time, and the West kind of rediscovered it when the Soviet uh, Union invaded Afghanistan in, in late 1979, um, uh, when they again, um, uh, the Western accounts or writings about Pashtuns were um, re-emphasized, uh, kind of tried to re-emphasize these um, stereotypes of Pashtuns being warlike people, violent people, and also very independent, and um, um, and and also uh, in a way one part, one major element was added to this discussion was that the Pashtuns were portrayed as um, fanatical Muslims who will participate or spearhead this jihad or holy war against uh, the, the, the um, um, Soviet occupation of their country. Um, so uh, again, um, and very few people actually tried to um, understand and scientifically and write scientifically or objectively about Pashtuns, more journalistic accounts were um, uh, influenced by this, these stereotypes. Uh, but I think we, as the war progressed and we went through various stages of the Afghan war, which was uh, first the Soviet occupation, then the post-Soviet occupation, then the Afghan civil war, then the Taliban rule, and then uh, 2011 uh, till now, uh, the Taliban insurgency in a way. So then of course, the narrative about Pashtuns began to change because in the 1990s, uh, most of the writings about the Taliban emphasize that the Taliban are Pashtuns and whatever they do is because of their ethnic identity or ethnic affiliation, um, or, or, which in many ways is wrong because the Taliban themselves have never claimed that they are an ethnic movement or a nationalist movement, or their aim is uh, aims are somehow nationalistic. They've always uh, said and claimed that they are um, fighting for or struggling for imposing what in their view is, uh, um, is um, pure Islam or ideal Islam, they call their government system, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Uh, they have opposed all uh, the Pashtuns and non-Pashtun um, nationalist elites in Afghanistan and, 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 and they have deliberately made sure they have always struggled against uh, being stereotyped 
uh, or confined to an ethnic movement. That's why they are very keen on showcasing that they have other um, uh, members, that they have members and supporters from uh, within other ethnic groups in Afghanistan. Uh, now, the Pashtun society broadly um, uh, um, in, in the 21st century, I think, think reacted to um, the prolonged war in their homeland. So we began seeing new perspectives, new writings, um, some of this for the first time, not for the first time, but um, I think more on an international level, um, were uh, written by um, Pashtun scholars or scholars from the region, which kind of deliberately basically tried to um, uh, undo this colonial stereotypes or colonial myths about Pashtuns. Uh, and at the same time with the uh, um, increasing use of social media, the Pashtun society um, wanted, uh, now wants to tell its, uh, the Pashtun people want to tell their story to the world. So we have in Pashtun regions, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan, a very strong uh, pro-peace movement, a movement that is mostly very moderate, uh, modernist in, in Pakistan, we have something called the Pashtun Tahafuz movement, uh, but also uh, um, a, a larger civil society movement, which includes members of political parties uh, from all kinds of political parties. We also have um, a very strong, in some senses, a Pashtun woman uh, movement where women are also asserting themselves. And um, just this week in Afghanistan for the first time, uh, the Afghan government uh, allowed the names of mothers uh, being mentioned in identity documents, which was a major demand of um, uh, um, some uh, activists or members of the civil society movement or uh, women rights movement in the country, but which is a major taboo in the patriarchal society, uh, particularly Pashtun patriarchal society. Um, so here in 21st century, we have uh, this large ethnic group estimated to be 50 million or 50 plus million divided between two countries, neighboring countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, and um, there is a very strong pro-peace movement. Um, um, uh, interestingly, most of this movement is uh, interested uh, not so much um, in a grand political um, design or settlement or something as their demands are mostly related to basic human rights. Um, uh, and of course, their foremost demand is uh, peace in, Afghan uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, we have also seen this kind of um, peace movement, uh, which began in uh, the southern province of Hilmand, again, part of the larger Pashtun homeland, um, and one of the most restive um, one of the regions that, that has have suffered most in the four decades of war in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, so, uh, and, and I think largely we, we're also seeing now that in the past decade or so, the international perspectives about Pashtuns um, is also changing to a degree. I'm not sure how much is changing in terms of actual state policies, but at least the public perception, the public debate, uh, the, the discussion, the discourse is changing. Right. Um, we've talked about, you know, the changing um, discourse, but I wonder, you know, in your book, you've also talked about the fact that 
you know, um, there's been a certain degree of unwillingness, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan, to absorb Pashtuns into the state structure and to incorporate them well enough into the economic and political fabric. Um, and this, you argue, um, you know, is a critical failure of nation and state building. Uh, yet what we see is that in Pakistan, ironically, uh, Pashtuns are disproportionately represented in the Pakistan army, uh, which assumes a lot of significance given, given that the army has ruled Pakistan for much of its history, directly or indirectly. In fact, two of the martial law administrators in Pakistan were Pashtuns. Right. Yet we see that, you know, the Pashtuns find themselves in the crosshairs of uh, the war on terror. Uh, they've been in the crosshairs of the Cold War before that. Um, so what does this tell us about the, the uh, political leadership on both sides of the Duran line? Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Sharma. Uh, um, before I answer this question, I also want to make, uh, to make clear that, I mean, whatever I discuss today, um, I discuss them as journalists, but of course, uh, whatever I say are my views, they're not views of my employer. Um, I think you have raised an important question, and I think a lot of people do talk about this. Um, I think the answer is very simple. Um, the Pakistani state or the Pakistani military is not an ethnic entity. Um, yes, there are Pashtun officers, um, and by Pashtun, we also include people who are of Pashtun origin. Um, um, I, I, I'll give you one example. In the Indian caste system, I'm now talking about the entire South Asian caste system, uh, the Pathans are a major caste in many societies, from Bengal to uh, Punjab. Um, uh, the Pathans are not, uh, in a sociological sense, the Pashtuns of today, because the Pashtuns of today do speak Pashto, this is one of their main identity markers. And then of course, most of the Pashtuns are somehow re, um, members of a larger tribal society. And then um, of course, uh, speaking Pashto is not limited to speaking a language. It's also uh, related to complex way of life or uh, tribal customs um, uh, in, in some tribes, in some regions, it's very strong still. In other regions, it's largely been forgotten, uh, which is something that journalists called uh, doing Pashto or Pashtun Wali. So um, the uh, thing about Pashtun uh, political question in Pakistan, Pashtun not being represented or Pashtun uh, leaders and Pashtun political movement claiming that they um, uh, have faced uh, oppression in Pakistan is not, I think, exclusive to the Pashtuns. And it, it's not because uh, there is somehow a conflict or some kind of problem with this, some Pashtun officers. Uh, everybody who serves in the military, I think, serves as a Pakistani first and is um, under the military discipline. Um, now, the Pashtun journals who were promoted uh, to very senior positions, including Ayub Khan, um, who was a Tareen by tribe uh, from uh, Hazara region uh, in uh, today's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, um, they didn't um, uh, act as member of a certain ethnic group. They acted as 
part of a very large, um, in some ways, very sophisticated bureaucratic uh, organization called the Pakistan military. Um, and I think within the military, um, you can call it an achievement. Um, there are no ethnic rifts. Um, I have not seen that the Pakistani, within a Pakistani military or armed forces, there are any ethnic rifts within the organization. But of course, in the larger Pakistani society, Pakistan is a country, uh, they faced a lot of problems uh, because of um, a, a set of very, uh, very complicated political issues uh, that first, that eventually resulted um, in the creation of Bangladesh uh, 20 years after uh, its independence in 1971. Uh, and Pakistan still have um, uh, complicated problems because it's a diverse country. Um, the military is involved in politics and, and there are many good works over the years, academic works or journalistic works who explain that, um, th those kinds of problems. Um, and uh, in my personal observation of what I have seen, what I, I mean, in my reporting career, I think um, the main issue that I have seen is that the federal democracy, um, um, the federal democracy that was um, um, envisioned, um, federal parliamentary democracy that was envisioned in the 1973 constitution, has never properly worked for a long time to take root. So we have, uh, since 1973, two military coups. Um, and then we have, um, and, and which resulted in, in uh, decade-long uh, military dictatorships. Um, so, so the problem is not as simplistic as um, giving some representation uh, to members of a certain ethnic group in uh, the armed forces or a government organization. I think the problems go beyond that. And the main problem is that uh, Pakistan has yet to work as a federal a parliamentary democracy, which is something that the country's constitution envisioned in 1973, but which has not delivered, which I think is very different from some of its neighboring countries. Uh, and we have to remember that Pakistan is in a region that's very complicated, where still many states are authoritarian or semi-authoritarian. And unfortunately, many states are going th that way. For example, um, what has happened in India uh, in the, or the past few years, uh, to many observers, it's, it's it doesn't uh, go well with the country's democracy. It has not done any favors to the country democracy. So Pakistan has similar problem, uh, but I think the problem is not, not as simplistic as members of one ethnic group being represented in one organization or not. So my question is, the current day movements the, about, of, from the leadership that we're seeing, like the Pashtun, you know, the Pashtun political landscape is punctuated by two very different kinds of movements. On one hand, we yeah. see the PTM and on the other hand, we are witnessing the resurgence of the PTM under the leadership of Mesud clan once again. So what do you think explains these two uh, parallel trends? Well, I think I'll, I'll first make a correction to your observation is that like um, no Islamist movement is limited to one clan or tribe. Uh, it can't be because a religious movement is 
I think, more open to or more broader than one clan or, um, and, um, uh, or members of a particular clan. And what you are, in essence, are pointing to uh, this way, um, historical and in some ways uh, deep-rooted phenomena of Pashtun Islamists versus Pashtun nationalists. Uh, so um, I, 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 I think, yes, that that's a genuine problem or an issue, but we have to also discuss, keep in mind the recent uh, geopolitics, the economy. Um, uh, we have seen that since uh, the uh, overthrow of Afghan monarchy. The monarchy was um, an institution. It was not just a group of individuals or one individual who left. It was an institution and an old institution, which primarily in the Afghan society addressed uh, the um, question of legitimacy. Who is the legitimate ruler? Now, in, if you look at the Afghan history in 19th century or 18th century, there were a lot of civil wars, infighting, but every Afghan knew that um, we have one royal family or one royal lineage and people leadership emerged from that um, lineage. But with the 1973 coup by um, Daoud Khan, who was an interesting member of the royal family, um, the um, Durrani dynasty ended. Uh, and, and in that sense, that in a sense opened the field for um, new claimants of political power. And that's it. In, in some ways, at it, it, the heart of the conflict in Afghanistan till date, although I won't deny or undermine other causes like great power intervention, um, uh, regional states. In, in Pakistan, uh, we also had, uh, since the British times, you have to recall and be honest and say that like for centuries, uh, there was this uh, competition between a more uh, religious leadership and secular leadership within Pashtun society. Um, even in 17th and 18th century, we had figures who were very religious and we had figures who were very secular. For example, the famous warrior poet, Khushal Khan Khatak. Um, 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 so, so this competition goes on, but now it has to do with the state formation, with the uh, interests of some of the neighbors or states. And also, for example, in Pakistan, uh, uh, I, I don't think anybody can deny that um, the secular Pashtun nationalist movement and also secular nationalist, ethno-nationalist movement of other ethnic groups have always been under state persecution in comparison to uh, religious movement or Islamist movement, which of course, um, uh, was strengthened in major ways during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan because that's what the geopolitical situation in the region demanded. Um, um, unfortunately, um, uh, there, there is still um, this uh, tendency or this effort, uh, but uh, from, a, from a society's pro uh, point of view, I think the Pashtun, uh, politically um, are divided, but I think large majority of Pashtun electorates everywhere have made clear that they are interested in peace, that they are interested in um, the, uh, their respective states being responsive to their needs. Um, I'll give you one example. Uh, Jamiat Ulama Islam, the main Islamist political party that gets, that is 
um, historically attracted a lot of votes in the Pashtun regions um, in Pakistan. Uh, their demands and their rhetoric today about democracy, about human rights, uh, um, about uh, in some ways civilian supremacy is not different from Pashtun nationalists. Um, so um, that I think answers uh, your question. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Khattar. Uh, but, you know, there's also been a lot of uh, criticism of the Pakistani states in, a lot, in, in the media, including the Pakistani media, and many have raised, um, you know, very serious questions on the efficacy of the Operation Zarbe Azb that was launched by the Pakistan Army to flash out militants from the troubled frontiers of Pakistan. Um, and, you know, the resurgence of the TTP of late um, is, is uh, pointed towards by a critic as one of the many signs of the failure of the Pakistan military um, to flush out militants, the sincerity, the question of sincerity. And they argue that, you know, it points to the fact that the Zarbias really didn't um, achieve any significant success. No uh, militant leaders, big militant leaders were flushed out. And what it did achieve was large-scale internal displacement. Do you agree with this assessment? Well, I think uh, this assessment is, in some ways, is very simplistic. And in some ways, it's very political because obviously it comes from uh, the perspective of um, a people or, uh, or persons or group or people who uh, feel aggrieved and I've extensively reported on, on these issues in the recent years. I think uh, the fact is that uh, if you look at Pakistan and Pakistan's involvement in Afghanistan post uh, 1980 or post Soviet invasion of Afghanistan or even posts um, um, after the 1973 coup, um, th th that kind of explains Pakistan's support, in some cases reluctant, reluctance to go against certain Islamist groups. Um, but I think um, a fair assessment, uh, which honestly will involve uh, a lot more research than um, people have done to date, will tell you that the Pakistanis have been very successful militarily in moving against groups that they thought somehow posed um, in their view, in Pakistani military's view, uh, threat to their national security interests. Uh, for example, the TTP. Uh, now the TTP is a former shelf of itself in recent, in the past couple of months, they have um, tried to unite and come back. But so far we have just um, a few, uh, attacks. Um, about the specifics of Zerbe Azab operation, this is um, a view that I've heard from a lot of people in North Waziristan, which is the region where the operation caused mass displacement. I think everybody who has been affected or displaced by military operations in Pakistan asks that, um, is it not possible to do counter-terrorism without mass displacement, without the kind of military force um, sweep military sweeps, the use of large-scale weapons, the use of uh, aircrafts and um, airstrikes um, that we have seen in Pakistan tribal areas. 
um, in military views, uh, Pakistani military view, it was not possible uh, because nothing else worked. They tried everything from organization, uh, from going, um, um, even concluding peace agreements with uh, different groups of the Taliban in various tribal agencies, which are now um, uh, districts of uh, Northwestern Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. But from a people, from perspective of people, civilians who were displaced by these operations, these explanations are not enough. Um, um, I, I think that uh, there are still a lot of gray areas and some of these gray areas are related to what uh, will happen uh, in, in, um, in a post-American uh, withdrawal Afghanistan. Uh, wh what are the domestic uh, threats? Um, we have to, if you do an honest assessment, you cannot uh, simply um, go by a conspiracy theory of opinion of few people because Islamist um, militant groups, they have uh, fought against a range of state uh, states in many continents in the past two, three decades from Philippines to Morocco or something. So uh, in some ways, Pakistan is not exception. And then of course, in Pakistan, you had the additional um, problem of uh, since 1980s, Pakistan being one part of uh, the a larger struggle between uh, a, a Shia clerical Iran and uh, Wahhabi Saudi Arabia. Um, so um, in my view, I, I won't uh, go uh, with a political answer, uh, which blames one party or the other, but I think from a local uh, perspective from perspective of the victims of these wars, um, the state can definitely do a lot better and even can change many things immediately. I think the first thing that they can change is um, to help the victims and uh, work. We still have displacement in North Waziristan. I think around 100,000 people have not gone back to their homes years after uh, Operation Zarbe Azab. And those, uh, resolving those issues should not be uh, very difficult for a country, um, the, the kind of resources that Pakistan has. Uh, and um, by addressing those grievances, I think Pakistan will do um, a favor to itself it's not a favor to these people. It will help Pakistan in strengthening national unity, um, in resolving um, political crisis that at some point can pose larger problems or, um, or foment uh, mass movements. Um, I, I think at this point, uh, addressing many of these issues are um, uh, quite straightforward. Right, right. So you also talk about uh, the U.S. Taliban peace deal, right? And how do you see how do you see that impacting the security dynamic inside Pakistan, when read against the backdrop of the rise of Islamic State, Khorasan, and the resurgence of TTP? So how do you see the security di dynamic inside Pakistan changing? Well, the security dynamic, um, I think. Uh, from a Pakistani military perspective, I think uh, there is still some lingering 
feeling or uh, thinking that uh, a Taliban government or a government that is more dependent on Pakistan or in Islamabad is much better than any other option. But we have also seen that um, time and again in the past 20 years, it's been proved that um, the best that Pakistan, the best protection of um, uh, Pakistan's um, interest in, in Afghanistan is offered um, by um, an Af a stable Afghan state that is not aligned to or rely on um, global assistance that is um, capable of defending um, uh, national unity and national sovereignty. And, and um, from what we see, uh, the current Afghan political system, which is uh, um, uh, formally called the Islamic um, Republic of Afghanistan, this Republican system, offers that. And um, President Ashraf Ghani has been very keen on uh, building those kinds of uh, um, ties with uh, Islamabad and even with the uh, uh, military leadership in Rawalpindi in uh, 19, uh, 2014, when he first visited Pakistan, the first thing he did was he went to uh, the Pakistani military headquarters. Uh, I think his administrations and Afghans at large are also sensitive to Pakistani um, sensitivities or questions about Indian influence in Afghanistan. Um, so, uh, but with the Taliban, um, uh, we have seen some positive things. I, I think the peace process in itself is a positive development because at the end of the day, you need to have a negotiated solution uh, to any armed conflict and um, every single armed conflict. Um, there are two ways of resolving an armed conflict. One, uh, one is that uh, one side is defeated and um, surrenders, uh, which was the case in the Second World War. And the other one is a negotiated solution like Northern Ireland, like in other places. Um, in Afghanistan, uh, there are two dimensions of the conflict. There is an intra-Afghan conflict, a conflict between Afghans who uh, support, which is primarily now between uh, those who support uh, the Islamic Republic and the Islamic Emirate, which is the formal name for the Taliban. And there are external dimension of the Afghan conflict, which are great power intervention, which are uh, interference by regional countries, Afghanistan immediate and near neighbors and their competition in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, I, I think that um, uh, if there is a Taliban um, I, I think for many Pakistanis or some Pakistanis in the Pakistani strategic community, um, their thinking is that the Taliban can somehow repeat, um, recreate their emirate of the 1990s. But I think the Afghan society has changed so much with education, with exposure, with international assistance, with uh, state building, uh, Afghanistan didn't have any state institutions in December 2001, but now it has a um, large army, it has a parliament, it has um, a government, um, which of course is struggling. Even the government in Pakistan is struggling. Governments um, in developed countries also struggle with issues and problems, but it's still Afghanistan. And, and the key fact is that this government or this political system um, 
is recognized and supported by the international community. So uh, I, I think that the Pakistanis realize this. Uh, I, I hope, I, I don't know for sure, um, but um, because a new um, um, uh, phase of Afghan war uh, might not um, uh, be limited to Afghanistan's um, borders. Uh, and we have seen that Pakistan has suffered from a lot from the Afghan conflict or fallout of the Afghan war since uh, early 1980s. Uh, and I don't think that um, a new phase of war um, will be any different. I think that with the settlement, um, which ideally will include, um, will, will, in, will see the Taliban and the Afghan government or supporters of the Afghan Islamic Republic agree on a political system that is acceptable to all Afghans, where all Afghans can return to their country and live peacefully, will be in the best interest of Pakistan. Because um, uh, a, a government by an extremist organization or even a hardline Islamist organization like the Taliban, might inspire uh, efforts uh, by similar groups in other countries to replicate this model. We have seen that since 1990s, Central Asia, Pakistan, even Iran has suffered from this kind of uh, what scholars typically label as Sunni radicalism. Um, and um, as you, you pointed, you mentioned IS. IS is a very good example um, that uh, there are no guarantees that um, if um, we don't have a comprehensive peace settlement in Afghanistan, some members even of the Taliban will, uh, who are today's member of the Taliban, will join the IS. And we have already seen it to, since 2015. The IS is mostly made up of members of Pakistani Taliban and Afghan Taliban. They didn't emerge from nowhere. They're, they're, they might have, like, uh, it's true that might attract a stream of recruits and maybe leaders. I think the current leader is an Arab, but um, still they somehow find um, enough local recruits. Um, and I don't think that the emergence or the working of these kind, kind of organization can be only um, attributed to or explained by some kind of conspiracy theory that one group or one state is supporting them. I think it's more complicated. Um, and, and some of these groups, hardline Islamist groups, or they are not uh, confined to any state's national security agenda. Right. Um, you know, uh, China of late has been playing an important role, essentially, in trying to um, also shape the contours of the peace settlement in Afghanistan. And China is one country which has had, of course, um, excellent uh, it's had an excellent relationship with Pakistan, but it's also had a very good relationship with the Taliban from the 1990s. The China-Pakistan relationship is, in fact, very well documented. And, um, you know, CPEC is touted by Pakistan as the latest testament to the strength of the relationship between Pakistan and China. Um, and Pakistan, in fact, believes that the two of them, that is Beijing and Rawalpindi, are going to be a winning combination uh, in Afghanistan in light of an American pullout. However, what is very striking, uh, Siddiq Saab, is, um, you know, all, the almost deafening silence 
uh, on the question of uh, China's treatment of its Uyghur Muslims. And this silence is very striking because um, this posture of silence has been adopted not just by the Pakistani state, but also by a plethora of non-state actors operating in the region across Pakistan and Afghanistan, who all claim that they don the mantle of political Islam. So be it, you know, the Afghan Taliban, be it the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, um, or be it the Pakistani state, uh, none of them have any uh, comment to make. In fact, they're all happy to do business with China. Well, I, I think I'll, I'll make a few corrections to uh, your question or what you said in, in support of your question. I don't think that all the Islamist organizations have been silent. I think, if I can recall right, the Taliban have issued statements like praising some uh, Uyghur scholar uh, who died or something. And um, uh, there were their propaganda videos of uh, Uyghurs militants. The only... Um, uh, the only um, a credible statement one has seen of criticism of the Chinese leadership actually has been from the IS. The Taliban has gone on record in 2015 to state that, you know, China is a country of trust. Well, um, I mean, if you go back to, I, I think some, I, if I remember the, um, uh, some website or some organization in Washington, um, um, something thing that keeps tracks of these kind of, is issued a detailed um, report about some of these uh, Uyghur militants active in Badakhshan, uh, which is the northeastern province in Afghanistan that uh, borders um, that borders uh, China, um, and and I think that um, uh, I don't agree that the Pakistanis and uh, Chinese interests absolutely um, uh, merge in Afghanistan. I think since 19, uh, 2014, the Chinese policy regarding Afghanistan has evolved. And I think uh, we also see some of, um, um, I mean, one, um, uh, and, and maybe the Chinese policy in Afghanistan is kind of more moderating influence on some of the hardliners um, in Pakistan or people who think that somehow in Afghanistan uh, they can support or recreate another Taliban regime or Taliban government. Uh, China has also, uh, through uh, various diplomatic statements and meetings, is fully supporting the American uh, peace, uh, the American-led peace process, America's uh, peace agreement with the Taliban or initial peace agreement with the Taliban in uh, February. Um, uh, Russia also has supported it. So, um, I don't think that um, the Chinese have any uh, intrinsic um, uh, interest in supporting uh, what some people, observers, might see as um, a, a, a Pakistani outlook for a Pakistani plan for Afghanistan. I also, um, the way I look at it, and maybe I'm wrong because I don't know everything, but I think that the Chinese interest in this region, particularly in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and also in Iran, are evolving, um, as are the Chinese interests in the larger region and in the, in the globe. I mean, um, I think that this whole idea of one belt one road is very simplistic because the Chinese leadership has been keen on selling it as a simple um, a plan of 
um, investment and business and connectivity. But I think if you are going to change, um, invest billions and billions, um, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in countries, um, then obviously you will have definitely have diplomatic, political and security interests in those countries. So with the uh, CPAC, we already have seen a lot of back and forth within Pakistan um, mm -hmm. on this and also CPAC uh, in relation to Afghanistan. Um, um, I, I don't think that uh, the Chinese are keen on building this whole, inf um, the range of infrastructure project in Pakistan to uh, be directly connected to uh, a Taliban administration in Kandahar or Quetta or something. Um, I think um, if, if the major aim of the Chinese investment is economic growth, economic development, connectivity, then you also need uh, political stability. Um, now, China being a, a one-party state or a country that's um, uh, in many people's view is authoritarian, um, they might not uh, come across or might not be able to support um, democracy or pluralism or uh, parliamentary politics as the West has, all, has been very keen on. Um, uh, but at the same time, I don't think that uh, for their internal security reasons, the Chinese are very uh, keen on, um, on uh, supporting a hardline Islamist um, regime in the country. Although, I mean, the Chinese policy always been that they, they, they claim that they do not interfere in internal affairs of other states or uh, allied states. Um, uh, but, but, but I also think that in the larger scheme of things, the Chinese, uh, the way this things in this region works is that uh, grand schemes and grand plans are often um, overtaken by short-term interests and tactical moves. And, and that is where uh, I don't see a very clear future for Chinese uh, investment or Chinese efforts in this region. Okay, on that note, uh, we'd like to thank you once again for taking time out and joining us on this episode of Charcha. It was um, well, it was very uh, engaging, I think, and we thoroughly enjoyed our discussion with you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. <laughs>